our California base area became a really large fire camp. We had about 3,000 firefighters based out of the parking lot. We had the incident command center here, and there was literally like a city built in the parking lot that was just bustling with activity, helicopters flying in, and it was just an unbelievable sight. And then our snow surfaces team were actually evacuated and they volunteered to come back in and were allowed to go back up the mountain and turn on our snowmaking system. And we literally soaked the ground while ashes and embers were falling from the sky. We, we just turned on a giant sprinkler system. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going big today with the first of two consecutive podcasts, Bullseye on one of the world's great ski regions, Lake Tahoe. We'll get right to that. First, though, your reminder that if you haven't done so already, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. I know I say this at the top of every podcast episode, and a lot of you are probably thinking, bro, I subscribed three years ago, chill. But there are people who still only listen to the pod and don't tag that with the newsletter. And that's a big mistake because the newsletter delivers an in-depth article along with each podcast that explores everything we talk about on that podcast in even more depth. In this episode, for example, Tom and I talk about the Killebrew family who modernized Heavenly. We also chat about the Caldor Fire, which destroyed the neighboring Sarah at Tahoe Ski Area. We talk about Stephen's past, where Tom worked for a long, long time, and we talk about Heavenly's master plan. We can only cover these topics with so much depth on the podcast, but you can really immerse yourself in them with the article that I built to accompany it. So please jump over to stormskiing.com and subscribe. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Before we get to Heavenly and Tom, a quick word from my partner. Today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season may be over in large parts of the country, but that means that lift maintenance season is just beginning. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry, and it includes industry expert sessions on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beav.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's b-e-a-v dot e-s backslash storm. Episode 126, Tom Fortune, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Heavenly and Vales Tahoe Region. When Vail Resorts finally ventured out of Colorado in 2002, the first resort the company purchased was Heavenly. It's easy to see why. At the time, Vail owned four monsters, Breckenridge, Keystone, Vail Mountain, and Beaver Creek. 
If Vail was going to expand, it needed to be with a resort that matched the breadth and appeal and drama of their Summit and Eagle County trophies. Heavenly does that, sprawling nearly 5,000 acres across two states, rising from bustling South Lake Tahoe, and with dramatic views of the water, Heavenly is one of the most impressive ski areas in the United States. A headliner resort, even seated within one of the densest and most impressive concentrations of ski areas on the continent. Vale, of course, knows exactly how special Tahoe is, which is why their next two acquisitions after Heavenly helped them complete a circle around the lake. Smooth and idyllic North Star on the North Shore in 2010, and Rowdy Kirkwood on the South Shore in 2012. Together, the three resorts form one of the great local single-pass ski area networks in North America. And what a season they've had. I figured this would be an awesome time to check in with Tom Fortune, Vale's head of that crucial region, to see how the season went and what's next. Let's go. My guest today is the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Heavenly and Vale's Tahoe region, which also includes North Star and Kirkwood. With 26 lifts serving 4,800 acres on a 3,500-foot vertical drop, Heavenly is one of the largest ski areas in America by nearly any measure, and is one of only four ski areas in the country to straddle state lines, with base areas in both California and Nevada. North Star sits on 3,170 acres on a 2,280-foot vertical drop, served by 19 lifts. And Kirkwood covers 2,300 acres on a 2,000-foot vertical drop, served by 13 lifts. Prior to taking the top job at Heavenly, he spent three years as general manager of Kirkwood. He also ran Idaho's Schweitzer Mountain for a decade and spent 20 years at Stevens Pass, Washington. Tom Fortune is my guest. Tom, so glad to connect. Welcome to the storm. How are you feeling as we get toward the end of April and the end of the ski season? Uh, good morning, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Um, it's feeling good. It's like uh, it's hard to believe ski season's still going on because we opened a week early and we're, we're we've extended the season. But you know, the last few weeks we've we've finally got spring weather and have gotten some good good spring skiing and riding in. So. It's uh, it's feeling really good to have the sun, and and I wasn't sure we were going to have a spring skiing season, but we we certainly have. So it's it's feeling great. And you're sitting on a really impressive base. Let's reflect on the season for a moment here, Tom. 570 inches so far for Heavenly, according to Ski Magazine, that breaks the record of 564 inches in one season, set in 2016 to 17. Then down at Kirkwood, I'm seeing a total of 708 inches. And again, according to Ski Mag, that breaks a record set in 1983. And up at North Star, you have 665 inches so far. I'm not sure if that's a record. I know you're accustomed to the big snows in Tahoe, Tom, but just how extraordinary and how outstanding has this Tahoe winter been for you? Well, it's been a ton of snow, even by Tahoe standards. And, you know, I've always said, uh, there's no such thing as too much snow. And I, you know, I stand by that now, but to be completely honest, there were times in January, February, and March that I might've, uh, wished under my breath, maybe that it would stop for a bit. But, um, I think, you know, the biggest difference from this year was, yeah, it was record snowfall in inches, but it was a cold winter. It's been cold since October. 
uh, with really low snow levels. So we not only got a lot of snow up high on the mountain, but we got a lot of snow down here at the lake level and in our community. And uh, it's been the coldest winter, I think, since the early 1950s. And we've uh, set a snowfall record each month and every month since October. So it's, uh, there's, there's been a lot of records broken this winter. And yeah, it was a lot of snow. How's the quality of that snow been, Tom? Because you mentioned it was colder and Tahoe's known for that Sierra cement. And I know that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but how much better has the snow been and the quality of the snow than what you might typically see in Tahoe? Yeah, it was consistently more cold and light snow than a normal winter. Um, I mean, we usually typically get some periods of of warmer wet snows and we just didn't see that even though we had a, a record i think 12 or 13 atmospheric rivers they were cold ones mm-hmm. and yeah this the snow was was really good and um that's something that we'll always remember about this season one of the nice things about getting that heavier snow is it can really build those layers and build that base you know you've already extended the season at to april 30th at north star may 7th at heavenly May 14th at Kirkwood. Any chance of further extensions or is that going to be it? Are you set on those? Yeah, I, I think that'll be it. I mean, it's it's not that we wouldn't want to or couldn't. I think it's more that, you know, people, especially after a long winter, you know, might want to get on their bikes and get on the water, get the golf clubs out. There's just other things to do this time of year. And it just, no matter how hard we try, people lose interest when it gets warm out. And uh, I think this will be a good end to a, a really interesting season. How have the crowds been so far in April, Tom? Are you seeing steady visitorship? Is it about what you expected? Are, are people showing up and taking advantage of the big base you have? Yeah, it's been good. You know, maybe about as expected, maybe a little better. It's, you know, kind of starting to die off. I think people are just hungry for the for the sunshine and the corn snow. And um, I hope that lasts for another few weeks. So for the folks that do come out, what are they going to experience at Heavenly in particular? Are you running the full footprint still until May 7th? Have you contracted operations a bit? What does it look like there right now? Yeah. One of the nice things about Heavenly is, you know, we can open up, we're, we're in two states. So we have access currently running from both Nevada and California and we're running the gondola on the weekends. Uh, and so we can open up a lot of acreage on just a, a handful of lifts. So we have, you know, almost the whole mountain open in terms mm-hmm. of acreage, but we're down to running just, I think, six or seven lifts at this point um, to access all that terrain. So is anything shut off? Do you still have Mott Canyon, Galaxy, those sort of fringe pods live? No, the fringe pods are done. We're, we're pretty much on the core areas now but we still have great coverage like you can pretty much ski anywhere uh ride anywhere on the on the train that we do have open but we've closed some of the outer fringes just just based on the visitation is that the footprint you plan on running through the seventh of may yeah we'll see how it goes as long as people keep showing up we'll keep stuff open if if it dies off for that last week we may have to shut down a little bit more so you made a comment just now tom that you'd never say that there's too much snow when I was skiing with the team down at Kirkwood, Matt Jones was explaining to me that sometimes having a lot of snow wasn't great for business at Kirkwood because it's a resort that's a little bit hard to get to. It's really sensitive to road closures. All those storms, not all the storms, but a lot of them happen to correspond with weekends and disrupt a lot of travel plans. Can you just talk a little bit more about 
how sometimes that volume of snow in Tahoe and the way it falls in Tahoe might not be as conducive to business as maybe it is in some other parts of the country. Yeah, timing is everything. Snow does help business. There's no doubt about it. I mean, so many of us love to ski and ride in powder snow, myself included. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that snow is also good for other businesses like ski shops, tire chain sales, and ski resorts. And so we, we, we need snow to be uh, in, a, in a good business. And I think when you get a lot of snow on peak times and, you know, especially once you get a big base built up, it's literally like reopening the resort over and over again every time there's a big storm. And that's because you got to dig out lift terminals, both top and bottom by hand. You got to raise tower pads. You got to change and raise rope lines and boundary lines. You got to dig out lift clearances, entrances to the lodges. So once you have a big base and it just keeps snowing these big, big storms, it, it literally is like reopening the resort over and over and over again. So that can be a challenge. And I would say the other thing about this year is you know, when you get a lot of snow in Tahoe, you know, we, we can go from a four lane highway through town to a two lane road. Mm. Um, and that really can cause traffic to back up. And, you know, you got to figure out where you're going to pile up the snow once it falls, whether that's a ski resort parking lot or the grocery store parking lot. And so there can be less room to park, you know, and maneuver around on a big snow year that, you know, you just kind of don't think about until you're in it. And, you know, they say this year, the other difference was besides the cold and the low snow levels is we had a lot of wind and a lot of icing Mm -hmm. conditions up on the upper mountain. And that just adds to the workload and the challenges of the whole thing. You know, it's a really nuanced answer, Tom, and a detailed answer. And I think for skiers, sometimes all they see is the mountains open or it's not, and they got a lot of snow and why aren't they open? And sometimes now that everyone has a megaphone, because we live in a social media world, these assumptions can multiply pretty quickly and turn into rumors and turn into a big headache for you and for your team. You've adopted, I think, a very transparent approach. How do you approach these occasions when you do have to shut the mountain for a day? And I know it doesn't happen that often, but or, or you do have lift outages. Talk us through your strategy and, and the transparent approach that you've taken to try to be really upfront with your skiers and tell them what's going on. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's just, it's so much easier to communicate um, in my own authentic way and style. So I, I appreciate, you know, being able to be candid and transparent. It, it just, it makes it a lot easier. And I think transparency is a key at a, at a complex resort, like heavenly, especially because you can't see the whole mountain from the base area. People, you know, aren't necessarily familiar with the mountain. It may be totally different weather at the base than it is up on the top. And so we just have to do our best to explain what's happening as openly and honestly as we can and focusing on and educating our guests about all the things that we're dealing with up on the mountain and why it may be taking longer to get things open you know, it's not always fun to talk about the challenges, but we we really have a responsibility to do that, to hear people's feedback and to operate responsibly. And, you know, it really bought, boils down to safety. We just, we focus, you know, our entire priority is always on safety first, whether that's for our guests and employees. And typically when it's storming and we're not open, uh, it's because we're either digging out 
to make it safe or it's just unsafe to operate. And so those are standards will never change. And we just have to do our best to explain why. Really curious on your perspective here, Tom, because as I mentioned in the intro, you've been in the ski industry running resorts in that part of the country for decades, four decades plus. How has the world changed since when you started as far as how transparent resorts are and can be because you didn't have these tools available to speak directly to skiers necessarily 30 or 40 years ago. So how has that evolved? And kind of personally, how did you adapt to that and and really realize the power of speaking directly to skiers? Well, it's it's changed a lot. I mean, I'm just reflecting back, um, you know, a long time ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago when you know, I would come to the resort and jump on a snow phone mm-hmm. and record a recording every morning for the guests to call up and listen to about the day's conditions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was really the only way people could kind of hear what was going to be happening at the resort on any given day. And I loved that. It was really an opportunity to kind of have a little personality in the morning to talk to folks. And, um, and that's just exploded you know, I think now we can reach so many more people, you know, so much faster and in so many different ways that, you know, that that's just not relevant anymore. And so, you know, that at the same time has opened it up to where people expect to be, you know, have up to date information all the time. And that's really what we have to do now that that's the the way of the world and what people expect. And so, yeah, through our dispatch department, which you saw, like that's really the hub for us to to put out information as things change throughout the day and in the morning. And it's changed a lot. And really, there's there's kind of like no reason to not be up to speed on what's what's happening at the resort. What's the guest reaction been like, Tom? Do you, do you find generally when you get out there and you explain, hey, we had a power outage or, hey, we got four feet of snow, it's going to take us a day. Do you find that generally folks understand and appreciate that? Uh, yes and no. I think some <laughs> people do understand. And the locals here this winter certainly understood because they were dealing with, you know, similar conditions at home every day. So that, mm-hmm. you know, that helped. Uh, some people just don't know and, and you know, think, think they know differently. And so you have to deal with that. But uh, I think telling the story honestly and showing videos and other things of what it's really like and what we're really dealing with, you know, pictures worth a thousand words a lot of times, and that does help. But, you know, I think we just got to know we we feel good about what we're doing and telling the truth and being transparent. And uh, I think most people appreciate that. You mentioned the local perspective there, Tom. I have to ask about your employees. As I traveled around Tahoe in March, there was a sense of exhaustion everywhere I went with folks, not only dealing with the snow at work, but also at home and in their cars. And I'm wondering in particular how that played out at Heavenly, because unlike the North Lake, you can look down and see the desert from Heavenly, where some of your employees, I think, live and maybe weren't as impacted by the snow. But just can you talk in general about the impact that this year did have on your employees and how they're doing now that it's in April and the snow has slowed down a little bit and the traffic has slowed down a little bit. Yeah, I can't say enough about how hard each and every member of the team worked this winter. I mean, it really was day after day after day of digging out your snow at home in the morning when you had to try to leave for work, you know, coming and 
and shoveling snow or dealing with the snow all day at work and then going home again and shoveling your driveway at the mm. end of the day. And it just, it took a lot of effort just physically and mentally to, to do that day after day, month after month, really for, for this winter. And so a lot of hard work and thankfully we were fully staffed and mm. we had enough people to do it. That made a huge difference uh, in the positive of it all. So really thankful for that. And you know, honestly, like there wasn't a snowblower for sale within a 500 miles of Tahoe and there were no shovels in the stores. Like you were kind of had to fend for yourself. And uh, the company also stepped up in a huge way and offered a lot of support to our employees um, and team members through mental health grants for employees who lost hours because they couldn't get to work or had roof damage to their house we did, you know, spaghetti dinners and grocery cards for employees. So we really, you know, tried to do our best to take care of everyone and really look after each other day in and day out and check in with each other. And um, we came up with a motto this winter, actually, Amy came up with this and we uh, have kind of used it all over the region, but uh, Tahoe is for shovelers. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's kind of our saying and, and that everybody latched onto that and uh, kind of made fun of the, the hard work we had. <laughs> well, that captures the spirit of it. And, and I, I did an interview with Amy standing and the general manager up at, at North Star, I assume you're talking about and standing over that new Comstock six pack that they put in. And it was buried under about, I would say 15 feet in a snow pit. I mean, it was operating and the lift was dug out, but you could see the walls that rose up from where the hill should have been. So you're no stranger to winter, Tom. You you grew up in a very, very snowy region. Center this for the listeners. Where did you grow up and where did you grow up skiing? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in um, Edmonds, Washington, which is uh, just north of the Seattle area. And uh, I started skiing at a pretty young age, probably a second grade. Mm -hmm. And my parents put me on a, a ski bus uh, in Seattle with thousands of other grade school kids from the Puget Sound area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all rode the bus up on Saturdays or Sundays and um, either went to Snoqualmie Pass or Stevens mm -hmm. Pass. And uh, I got lucky enough to be sent to Stevens Pass, you know, with all those kids for a few years as I was uh, in elementary school. And I just got hooked on it from that that first day, and that's where it all started. And then our parents took us on ski trips and things like that when we were little as well. Where would your parents take you to? Was it around Washington, or would you go to the Rockies? Yeah, we typically stayed in the West. We went to Whistler Blackcomb back before it was a giant uh, resort like it is now. We came down here to Tahoe and went to Heavenly mm -hmm. uh, and other ski resorts down here. And uh, kind of everywhere in between. And we did, my parents were from Montana. So we went back to Montana a lot mm -hmm. and skied there. And I actually have, uh, I have three boys. One, one of them works at Stevens Pass on ski patrol. And I have two boys that live in Whitefish, Montana, oh, nice. work at the ski resort there. So they're kind of going back to where it all started. So as your parents are carting you and the, and the boys around and, and you're exploring all these different places and exploring the West, did that get into you during that time that you wanted to make this your career? Totally. Yeah. I, I remember being in the mountains when I was just a kid and just wanting to be there all the time. And uh, I didn't think so much as a ski resort manager, mm -hmm. I was thinking more like a forest ranger or something like that. <laughs> but 
uh, I knew I wanted to be in the mountains, in the woods, and um, so thankful I've been able to spend my entire working life doing that. So how did you make that turn? What was your first job in skiing, Tom? My first job was at Stevens Pass when I was in high school. I was a teenager, and mm-hmm. I worked in the repair ski repair shop. Wow. They're tuning skis and waxing skis and fixing skis. They didn't have snowboards at the time, so mm-hmm. I didn't get to work on those for uh, quite a bit later. So Stevens Pass is really interesting place. Classic ski area, open in the 1930s, one of the oldest ski areas in the Northwest. Now it's owned by Vail Resorts, high-speed lifts, and it's it gets a lot of attention. Wasn't always the case. Take us back here, Tom. What was Stevens Pass like when you first started working there in the late 70s, early 80s? It was it was old school compared to now. I mean, I just I love Stevens Pass. I, I get a certain feeling whenever I go there, and uh, it's a very special feeling. And when I started there, there was one day lodge, uh, mm-hmm. and just a bunch of double riblet chairlifts with mm-hmm. posts straight down the middle of the lift, and they were long and slow, and took forever to get to the top, and uh, it was just your classic Pacific Northwest kind of family, old-style ski resort. It was great. So Vail Resorts, I'm sure you're aware, is replacing the Cares Chair at Stevens Pass this year with a fixed-grip quad. That is one of the oldest operating chairlifts in the country. I know we got to move on. I know we got to evolve. I like new chairlifts. I like old chairlifts. Any nostalgia or feelings of longing as you see Cares about to, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, but if you see that chairlift about to be retired. Yeah, I actually have a CARES chair uh, on my porch at home here in Tahoe. My my son brought it down to me and I had, it's all, it's even painted in the original yellow paint that it was when I was little. And so I get to sit on that thing and swing anytime I want. And uh, it brings back a lot of memories. And uh, yeah, I cherish that, that lift a lot. And uh, I'm so thankful I have a piece of that, you know, around me every day. And um, yeah, it is time to upgrade and, you know, make things safer and more efficient at the same time. But uh, it's, a, it's a great bit of history. So you're a high school kid working in the ski shop. You ended up staying at Stevens Pass for 20 years. Take us through that journey, Tom, and what you did and what you learned in that time. Well, I learned everything at Stevens Pass. I mean, I started working there in the late 70s and, you know, had a had the a frontline role working in the ski shop and literally over the 20 years kind of worked my way through every level of operation in almost every single department. And it's where I cut my teeth and where I learned. And, you know, I learned business, I learned, you know, labor management, I learned scheduling, I learned cost of goods. I learned all these things that have carried me through the rest of my career. And, I'm so thankful that it was a small enough resort that you really kind of had to do a little bit of everything. And, you know, that just allowed me to learn so much more. And also just everybody did everything at that Mm -hmm. resort. And uh, my last role there in 1998, I was director of operations, pretty much running the day-to-day resort. That was quite an experience. How does that experience, Tom, inform your leadership style now? Because we skied around a little bit and, and, you're doing all kinds of stuff on the mountain, fixing lift mazes and helping folks up. And, you know, obviously very familiar with the nuts and bolts of a ski area. How have you carried what you learned at Stevens 
into the role you have now where you're running one of the largest ski areas in the country, but are still not afraid to get down there and do what needs to be done. Yeah, I think that that it just comes from, you know, those times when, you know, that's really what you kind of had to do. And so that was just ingrained in me as just a way to show up and mm-hmm. to help in wherever it's needed. And, you know, I think that led into my leadership style. And, you know, it's something that's just part of who I am as a as a leader and a resort employee. And and I love that. I think that's, you know, being out there in the in the field is what I love the most. And I'm grateful for having learned to manage that way. So it sounds like you had a great run at Stevens. It was a place that meant a lot to you. Ultimately, though, you did leave. So take us through your decision to leave and where you went next. Yeah, the owners of Stevens Pass bought Schweitzer Mountain Resort in Sandpoint, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked me to go uh, run it as the new GM. Oh, nice. And uh, I never thought I would leave Stevens Pass. I, I loved it so much. Um, I never thought I would leave. It was super scary to think about <laughs> leaving. Uh, and I'm so glad I did. I got to go uh, from there and, and run several other resorts and live in you know some amazing places. Tell us about Schweitzer and what that resort was like when you got there. That's a place that's grown a lot in the last couple of decades. I'm not sure where it was at in 1999, but what did you find when you got to Schweitzer? Yeah, well, when I got there, it was uh, in the very, very last few weeks of the season in 1998, and I actually um, got hurt on the mountain. I blew oh, no. my ACL on the mountain like with one week to go, and I didn't really know anybody at the ski resort. And mm-hmm. so here I was, the new GM, and I got hurt and had to oh, get no. taken off the mountain. And so that was kind of my intro. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> Rough landing. I, yeah, I healed up fine and was, you know, out skiing on the opening day of the next year. But it was very different than Stevens Pass in a lot of in a lot of ways. Number one, it was all private land, mm-hmm. whereas Stevens Pass is all on Forest Service and National Forest property. Uh, so that was a big change. Uh, it's a big mountain with a lot of great terrain and a and a backside and you know, amazing views of Lake Ponderé from the top of the mountain and kind of reminds me of of heavenly and mm. being at the top of the sky chair sometimes I, I reminisce about how much that's like being at the top of Schweitzer uh, there was a lot of work to do there the the resort had a lot of deferred maintenance so we really rolled up our sleeves and got to fixing up the resort and a lot of things they're doing today there now were were part of the planning and and things that we talked about way back when there Idaho is such an interesting ski state to me, Tom. I've hosted the general managers of several Idaho ski areas on this podcast, Brundage and Tamarack and Bogus Basin. These are big ski areas and they have lots of acreage and lots of vertical and they get 300 inches of snow per year, but they're just not on the national radar in the way that a similarly sized mountain in Utah or Colorado would be other than Sun Valley. And now Schweitzer is getting a little bit of attention because it's joined the Icon Pass a few years back. But as someone who's been on the inside, why do you think that Idaho has lagged Colorado, Utah, Tahoe, some of these destination places on the national scene when the quality of the skiing is really outstanding? Yeah, it really is. Uh, I think it's, you know, my personal opinion, I think it's less about, you know, the question about Idaho or not getting attention. I think it's just a fact that Idaho's a little harder to get to than mm. a lot of you know, ski destinations. And for that reason, it's a little bit more off the radar. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it just doesn't get the exposure that some of the bigger resorts get. 
So you're running your own resort in Idaho and sounds like you're having a good time up there and really helping Schweitzer grow. Ultimately, you left to join Vail Resorts in, I believe, 2010. What led to that decision, Tom? Because that's a big move, right? You go from working for this small company that owned a couple of resorts to working for the big guys. So take us through that process and why that appealed to you. Yeah, I, I worked for the uh, Harbor Resorts who owned both Stevens and, and Schweitzer for many years, almost 30 years. And um, when I was at the end of my time at my 10 years at Schweitzer, I was also running the real estate. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been kind of phasing more and more over into the real estate side. Mm -hmm. And my wife, Jennifer, and I actually ran the real estate company for Schweitzer. And in 2008, uh, mm -hmm. the recession hit and, and all that real estate work kind of dried up for a bit. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just did some soul searching and really missed running the the ski operations on a day-to-day -day basis. And so decided to, to get back to my passion and which was really out in the field running resorts and got lucky enough to, to get a job during the recession at, at Snow King Mountain in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Oh, nice. And did that for a couple of years uh, until an opportunity came up to join Heavenly and um, really a chance to join Bell Resorts uh, in 2010. And I, I jumped at the chance. Let's pause the Snow King for a moment. That is such an interesting place for me. Little town hill. You're kind of in the shadow of Jackson, but a steep hill, a good hill, a good ski area. If you took it out of Jackson's shadow, Jackson Hole's shadow, it, it would be it would be regarded in a much different way. Just tell us a little bit about Snow King and what it was like to live and work in Jackson. Yeah, it was amazing experience. I learned yeah as much there as I have anywhere because I really had to wear a lot of hats as the as the leader of the the mountain there. It's a world-class ski race hill. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we, we held the pre-Olympic training uh, for the Salt Lake Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we hosted eight national teams from all over the world on Snow King because it was such a great slalom and GS hill. So really ski racing is a big part of the culture for that particular little resort. And yeah, very, very expertise in that in that world, which I hadn't had a lot of experience in. So that was really great to, to learn all about getting a hill and a, and a slope ready for ski racing at that level. Uh, and, you know, luckily enough to, to be able to live in a condo that the resort put us up in. So we lived right in downtown Jackson, which, you know, is a very hard place to live right now. So yeah, it was just a great experience all around. So you landed Vail and Vail Resorts in 2010 to set this up for the listeners was a much smaller company than it is now. Had several resorts, but not the 43, 41, 42, 41 that it has now. So where did you land at Vail Resorts? What was your first job there? Yeah, I was a director of base operations at Heavenly. Mm. And uh, there were five resorts in the company, uh, four in Colorado and one in Tahoe. And um, yeah, that was, uh, it was a whole different company then, uh, but it was a great opportunity to get my foot in the door with this company and it certainly led to a lot of other opportunities since. So you grew with the company, they buy Kirkwood. Is that when you moved down there? No, not at first. I was director of base operations at Heavenly until 2016 and then went to Kirkwood as senior director of mountain operations uh, in 2016, when um, Dave Myers, the long-term, long-time mountain manager at Kirkwood, retired, 
Uh, and then I did that for two years, ran mountain ops at Kirkwood, and then got promoted to the GM of Kirkwood in 2018 and did that for a year. So talk about Kirkwood here, Tom. I, I think a lot of listeners are familiar with it. Going back in time here, there was a little bit of surprise when Vale Resorts purchased Kirkwood. It had always been this rowdy South Lake free skiing mecca, and folks had pigeonholed Vale as this resort operator of places like Keystone and Vale and Beaver Creek, where you had more of a base village and, and people right there. So talk about Kirkwood and how it fits into the Vale Resorts portfolio and really complements the other resorts like Heavenly that you have in the portfolio. Yeah, Kirkwood's another one of those special places. It, it kind of reminds me of Stevens Pass in a way where there's you know such a sense of community and like-minded people um, that really have a passion for the place. They're really, really kind of unique in that way. Um, and they're smaller. So I think that that creates a, a little more intimate uh, sense of community compared to some of the bigger resorts. I think we all have our own very special cultures and, and communities as well. But Kirkwood's just an amazing place to ski. I mean, the mountain itself is steep and gets a lot of snow and it's it's uh probably the best skiing i've ever had in my life has been at kirkwood you have hosted several former general managers of kirkwood on the show chip siemens who now runs windham mountain tim cohey who now runs china peak and every one of them said that kirkwood is just a monster when it comes to snow management because even by tahoe standards kirkwood just tends to get smashed just talk a little bit about the challenges of running kirkwood and how over the top it can be compared even to the other snowy places you work. Because Stevens Pass, as everyone knows, gets 400 plus inches a year, but Kirkwood is just a whole other animal. Yeah, it really is. I think, you know, the remoteness of it and the, you know, the Carson Pass in itself and Carson Spur are, are fairly unique and they just, they close a lot when there's big storms um, due to slides and, and all that weather. So, you, you know, it's a, it's a place where you get isolated and, you know, you can be stuck there for days with your fellow employees and, the, you know, anybody who happens to be staying there at the time, uh, which is also pretty unique because we would typically run a lift or two for the, for the people that are, are stuck there. Those were some of the best days ever. Just the sheer amount of snow and snow management is, it's just relentless and nonstop sometimes and you got to keep up with it or you'll never, never get back to it. So it definitely keeps you on your toes. It's probably nice you have that perspective as the guy overseeing the Tahoe region, because when Matt Jones gets a big storm, you know exactly what he's going through, right? Yeah, I think one of one of my last years there, I have a, I had a cot in my office, which I gave to Matt when I left. So <laughs> nice. I, think I spent 15 nights on that cot in my office. Wow. One year. And I, I think Matt's probably spent more nights on it, you know, over the last couple of years, certainly this year. And so, you know, being stuck there is just one of the one of the parts of the the role. And, you know, it's what, what we do. It's what also makes it pretty special because you're with your, you know, your coworkers and the community and you have to look out for each other. And uh, it's, it's kind of a special, it's a special vibe for sure. Yeah. It was kind of funny. We had lunch there at the, I don't know if it's called the double diamond cafe or whatever that one is at the bottom of the lifts. And we walked across to the real estate office there to use the restroom. And there was a gal in there who was minding the office and she had her dogs with her. She said, yeah, I bring my dogs in anytime the road might close because I never know when I'm gonna have to spend the night. That's so true. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, all right. So you're at Kirkwood and you get the chance to run Heavenly. How did that opportunity come up? What appealed to you about Heavenly? Yeah, Heavenly's, it's another place. It's the hardest place I've, I've ever managed. It's, it's just so big and complex and spread out. And I'll never forget when Mike Gore and Pat Campbell uh, asked me to take this role at Heavenly and I was leaving the, uh, Pat's office in Broomfield, and she said, this is after I said yes, she said, oh, by the way, Tom, Heavenly's the, the hardest resort you're going to ever run. And uh, I, I never forgot that, and she was right. It's just a challenging <laughs> resort. It's so complex with four base areas. You know, it's spread over two states, three counties, one city, and I think, you know, eight miles apart between base areas. You know, and it's exposed to the elements from all sides. So you just, every day is different and you have to be ready to pivot and expect the unexpected. And the team here, you know, so many long-term employees are just so good and willing to work through whatever the challenge of the day is to keep the resort open and keep it going. So it's uh, very complex from a multitude of different angles. And it's a great mountain as well. And with incredible people working here. You know, I have to think, Tom, a mountain of this size, no matter what, is going to be comp complex. What really strikes me about Heavenly is this two states thing. And not just two states, but two very different states. Like I mentioned in the intro, one of four ski areas spread over two states in America. For listeners wondering what the others are, it's Lost Trail and Lookout Pass in Idaho, Montana, and Catamount, which straddles the New York, Massachusetts border. All of those states are a little bit more, I'd say, ideologically similar when it comes to rules and regulations. Nevada and California can be two very distinct cultures. So just tell us about that, Tom. How do you deal with all the different regulatory agencies and politicians and interest groups that get multiplied when you're dealing with two different states? Yeah, there's there's a lot. I think you know the the approach. There's also yeah such a such a focus on the environment here and specifically Lake Tahoe and keeping it uh, clean and pristine as it is. So I would say in general, you know, California's a highly regulated uh, state with a lot of requirements from government, and you know we typically follow the highest standard, wherever that comes from, whether it would be Nevada or California or one of the agencies or whatever. And, and by following kind of the highest, most strict standard, that covers us really well in the other areas that maybe have a little bit, you know, less stringent rules. Mm -hmm. So that rule of thumb with that has worked out pretty well. You know, there are a lot of agencies that look out for environmental regulations and requirements like the TRPA is the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency. And then we have the Forest Service too, which is operates both in both states and all around the basin. And so between the TRPA, which also governs the entire basin, we really have kind of a couple high-level organizations that give us the, the rules of the road because you have so many different jurisdictions. So having a couple bigger, higher level ones really does help. And then we also partner with the Tahoe Fund, the League to Lake, Save Lake Tahoe, and other entities that look out for the common good of the environment and the communities around Lake Tahoe. So there's a lot to it. And I think you know having some of these bigger organizations that kind of govern the entire area, that, that helps keep it 
a little bit simpler. So it's incredibly complex and you have your hands full of Heavenly and you're in charge of one of the biggest and I would imagine busiest ski resorts in the entire country. Then at the end of 2021, you get called in on a special assignment and it's to Stevens Pass, which Vail Resorts had acquired. What took you to Stevens Pass, Tom? How did you end up there and what were you doing there? Yeah, you know, there were there were significant operational challenges at Stevens at the time. And I, I think the, the global staffing shortages really hit them harder than a lot of places. And I think they just, they got hit, hit hard with a lot of challenges that, you know, we didn't expect and probably should have been a little bit more aware of. And it just kind of snowballed and, and got to a point where there needed to be some changes made. So I was brought in as an interim GM and yeah, just helped the team shift and reset. And, you know, really it's the team up there that, that turned it around and did all the hard work. And uh, I was just honored for me to be part of that and to help them get through that period of time. Was that coincidental? Did Vail give you the assignment based on the fact that you had history there? Was it a coincidence? Is it something you volunteered for because of the mountain means something for you? How did you end up up there? Well, I'm, I'm sure I had a choice in the matter, but I didn't, I mean, it didn't take me two seconds to say yes. Um, I didn't know it was coming and I didn't hesitate for a second when I was asked because I, I love Stevens Pass and I would do anything I could to help that resort. And so you know, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't me who made things right there. It was the team and the community who all really wanted to see things improve and work together to do so. And um, yeah, I'm really happy for Ellen and the team up there that they're doing so well right now. So let me rewind here a little bit, Tom. They all bought Stevens Pass, I believe, 2018. I'll I'll fact check that, but. You'd been available for quite a while at that time. Were you at all involved in that transaction as an advisor or, or, you know, based on your history there? And how did you react when Vail purchased Stevens Pass? No, I wasn't involved. And um, I was stoked when it came on. You know, I wish all my years of service would uh, go toward my <laughs> lifetime pass, but I don't think that's going to necessarily work out. But uh no, I was I was really happy because I, I love Stevens Pass and I know how much a company like Vale Resorts can help improve that resort and take it to where it uh, really needs to go and can go. And so I was happy, you know, from every every point of view. It was really cool to see that come through and be working at a different resort and knowing, you know, place I grew up and learned was now part of our company. That's a really interesting take on it, Tom. And, and I think there's a tendency, sometimes folks get freaked out when a big conglomerate buys their resort. They're afraid it's going to ruin the character. It sounds like, I, so set it up for us this way. When a company like Vail buys a place like Stevens Pass, in a way, it really sets it up for a promising future because you know it's going to get the capital it needs. So was there an element of that to it as in you knew that the place was was not going to get lost to the modernization? Yeah, I think the stability that our company brings to a resort, any resort, but a resort like Stevens Pass in particular is, it's just a, that's a great thing because a lot of ski resorts don't have that and they, you know, they have to operate on a season to season basis and that stability uh, is, you know, for both employees and customers is, 
is really a, a good thing. So you get up to Stevens, Tom, and you'd left in 1998. It's 2021. Did you still know folks up there? Were there people you had worked with who were still on the ground, who were still doing important jobs at that resort? There were not as many, but uh, yeah. there were a few people still working there. Uh, Scott Olson, the lift maintenance manager there, director there, was there when I was there. And a lot of the uh, locals and customers you know, are my friends. And so I, I knew a lot of people up there and uh, that made returning up there so special. So what was your approach going up, Tom? Because it was a really interesting set of issues you were dealing with and it was all well publicized and there were a lot of social media strings going around about this. So, so what was your approach here? How did you get on the ground, calm everyone down, refocus the teams, identify the big problems, pick morale back up, keep things moving in a positive direction and really salvage the season? Yeah, I would say a couple things. I think, you know, my approach was to support the team and give them the needed resources uh, that they were lacking. And that came together, you know, through a lot of our corporate partners uh, who really leaned in and helped get the hiring train going. And we got a lot of help from the team at Heavenly, um, sent lift operators up there and other resorts sent staff up there. So we were able to get the backside open, you know, within a couple of weeks. And that was really part of the angst was just getting some lifts and terrain open. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think things just started to improve and morale got better. And then, you know, people wanted to come back and work there. And so it just, you know, started some momentum for the team up there to to get back on track. And, and they're the ones that did it all. Uh, it was just giving them the support. And then I would say, you know, there were a couple of, um, besides the tactical work, you know, embracing the culture of Stevens Pass, SPKA, the Stevens Pass Bluebird, like, like embracing that, bringing that back into the culture was, you know, super rewarding to the, to me and to the people up there, the, the community, um, it meant so much and it was just so cool. That was, uh, that was a really fun part of, of that journey. So you got to spend a little time up there, handed the baton off ultimately to Alan Galbraith, the new general manager up there who will join me on this podcast in a couple of months. What made Alan the best choice to run Stevens Pass? Uh, Ellen's great from so many different perspectives. I think the fact that Ellen was involved in the kind of the transition of me going up there, um, you know, she was in a different role at the time with corporate. So she was there a lot and, you know, got to help with all this and get her, get her hands in it and help the team. So she was up there for a lot of the time that I was there and uh, she's from Washington state. And that, that seems to resonate a lot with the, with the folks up there just to seen as one of them. And yeah, she's just a, a really hard worker with a lot of experience and a lot of great leadership tendencies and characteristics that I think fit really well with that team and that group. And she's crushing it up there. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to see that. So you had to wave goodbye to Stevens Pass. I'm sure you go back and ride that new Karis chair next year, but back to Heavenly. And there's so much we could talk about with Heavenly, Tom. One of the most interesting things about the mountain to me is it was one of the first ski areas in Tahoe to install top to bottom snowmaking. And when you think of Tahoe, when most folks think of Tahoe, snowmaking is not the first thing that they think of, especially this year, right? But that snowmaking really came from Bill Killebrew, who took over the resort from his father and uh, 
and built up that that system. So talk about Bill's legacy and how he set Heavenly up all those decades ago. So I'm talking about early 80s when he started doing that, how he set up Heavenly for the long term success that is the foundation for what you're enjoying today. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm thankful that I, I know Bill as well as I do. You know, the circumstances that he uh, took over Heavenly were tragic. You know, his, his dad was killed in a helicopter crash and he was in his early 20s and, you know, been, been around the ski area with his dad, but certainly didn't plan on taking it over and running it at that point in his life. And I think he he did understand and was probably quite involved in creating the vision for Heavenly with with Hugh. And, you know, as far as I know, he really carried the vision on that they had started and really quite a visionary and very smart man. And I think snowmaking at the time was a way to be consistent in getting the resort open consistently with reliable terrain, not relying on mother nature year after year. And man, it really paid off. It gave this resort so much consistency. And, you know, over the past 21 years that Vail's owned Heavenly, we've really continued to operate that system. And of course, made a lot of upgrades and to the system itself and expanded a little bit here and there and, and put in new technology. But it's really something that started way back with Bill. And we've continued to utilize that investment uh, in a big way over the years. So talk about that snowmaking system today, Tom. I mean, 4,800 acres of terrain. There's no way that you're going to cover even all the trails with that. So so how extensive is the system at Heavenly today? And long-term, what's Vail, what are Vail's goals to build out that system? Yeah, I think it covers most of our main runs. And mm-hmm. so we can open a lot of terrain on snowmaking and hopefully it's just a supplemental way to get things open. It gives, gives you a, the consistent base that you need to get through the whole season. Uh, sometimes natural snow doesn't have the density that man-made snow will have for warm spring weather. And so that gives you that consistency to last the whole season, which is a really big deal. We have it really almost all across the resort. We have one section that we don't have snowmaking, and that's on Skyline Trail from the top of Sky Chair over to Nevada. And that's a that's a key connector. Luckily, it's at 10,000 feet, so <laughs> we typically have snow there. But we've had, you know, we've had to get creative over the years to make sure that that was connected. So I think mainly, you know, snowmaking system that was built in the early 80s has a life expectancy. And so we're really spending most of our resource and time upgrading pipes and compressors and keeping the system fresh. And then also with newer technology, more energy efficient guns and more energy efficient and automation is a big piece. So really it's not so much expanding it, it's it's mm-hmm. modernizing and making it more efficient. How much did you actually have to use the system this year, Tom? Because the snows came early and they just kept coming, like you said. Yeah, we did. We we made our kind of our goal for snowmaking gallons this season because we did get snow early, but it wasn't enough to guarantee getting through the whole season. And just a year ago, we weren't able to keep the California side open the entire season because we lost snow during a a really long heat wave and dry part of the season. And so we wanted to make sure that we had enough snow. You know, we didn't know we were going to get so much in 
from January 1st through March that we did, but we, we didn't cut back a lot, you know, really either at North star or heavenly, because we, we just had to guarantee that we would have enough snow to get through. And then now of course we have more than enough to get through. <laughs> does Kirkwood have snowmaking? Uh, Kirkwood does have a snowmaking system that, you know, it's, it's a smaller system, but it, it's enough to really help that resort open on time and, you know, have a consistent footprint. So uh, it's a pretty good system, and I think there's some room for expansion and improving on that one as well. So unfortunately, Tom, because of conditions in the West and the dry summers and the wildfires, snowmaking systems have become essential piece of summer as well to fend off fires. And you really were tested in the summer of 2021 when the Caldor fire tore through South Tahoe and threatened heavenly. Take us through that, Tom. What was that like? How did you use your snowmaking system? What was the team response like when you saw that fire headed toward you? Uh, it was intense from so many different angles. I would I would say like the, the biggest thing that jumps out to me is just how proud I am of our team for how they showed up during the Caldor fire. And I'm not just talking about the heavenly team. They of course were in, in the thick of it, but we really rallied as a region. Um, North star played a big role in supporting both Kirkwood and heavenly. And, you know, a lot of us went up there and stayed during the evacuation. So mm -hmm. we really showed up as a team and then our corporate side as well. Like they were with us every step of the way and we couldn't have done it without that entire group of people leaning in Thanks specifically for Heavenly, we were pretty actively involved. Our, our California base area became a really large fire camp. We had about 3,000 firefighters based out of the parking lot here at California. Mm -hmm. And that actually made me feel pretty good having that many firefighters staying right at the base of the mountain. Um, we had the incident command center here and there was literally like a city built in the parking lot, a temporary city that was just bustling with activity, helicopters flying in and fire trucks. And it was just an unbelievable sight. And then our snow surfaces team were actually evacuated and they volunteered to come back in from evacuation and work with the fire captains and uh, were allowed to go back up the mountain and turn on our snowmaking system. And we literally soaked the ground while ashes and embers were falling from the sky, we, we just turned on a giant sprinkler system and mm. just wetted everything down. And, you know, I can't say for sure it stopped the fire from coming onto our property, but it sure made a difference in my mind to have a wet ground when the fire's crawling up the side of the mountain toward you was a pretty awesome feeling. I'm not sure what your mix is of mobile guns versus stationary did you do a lot of moving around of guns to focus on certain areas? We did. We did both. I mean, we, we fired up the system at full capacity and we used every piece of equipment we could. So we moved stuff around. We used tower fan guns and, you know, more permanent stuff. And yeah, the fire was coming from the south. So we focused most of the efforts on the kind of the south side of the resort and just made sure that that was soaking wet and put, we could put out any of the of the ashes that were falling from the sky. How does that reality, Tom, reflect in the way that Heavenly is going to build out its snowmaking system? In other words, a lot of resorts will go with a lot of stationary guns where they know they're always going to need to make snow. But given 
that fire could come from many different directions. You might have to focus snowmaking or water on one area. Are, are you trying to get more mobile guns maybe than a, a resort of your side would normally have? Is there any part of your snowmaking that thinks about summer? No, I think, you know, our snowmaking system's pretty big and complex anyway. And I think mm -hmm. we're always going to need portable equipment to connect the dots and in the winter time. So I don't see that really changing a lot. We also have a lot of fixed towers and things where we, where we know we need a lot of snow, but I, I think the portable piece is always going to be a part of our winter plan. And mm -hmm. that just helps the summer situation. Cause you really, you know, you can't plan for a fire in which direction it's going to come from. And so having portable equipment is a strategy for sure in the summer. And I think luckily for us, we, we need it in the winter that way as well. So yeah, happy to have that portable equipment. Tom, talk a little bit more about the collaboration between Heavenly, the firefighters, the Forest Service, all these different parties involved. Are these things that you train for and have plans for? Did you have to do this on the fly? What did those relationships look like and kind of who took charge and guided the whole thing? Well, so it was a, a lot of people were involved, really. The community was evacuated, so there weren't a lot of folks around, even on our team. But we we had created a fire plan, a pre-attack fire plan before the Caldor fire. And part of creating that plan was working with all the fire agencies. And, you know, we have an annual meeting long before this fire started where we get firefighters up on the hill, forest service up on the hill. So they know our roads. We, we have maps of key infrastructure like snowmaking equipment and propane tanks, things that a firefighter would need to know if there was a fire nearby. And so we were pretty prepared for this and it really, it really came in handy. So it was largely just the leaders of the company working with the commanders on the ground and following their lead. But using our expertise on the mountain to help them and help us save the resort. And, you know, a result of this has been creating a consistent fire plan at all of our resorts in the West, including the Rockies and the West, West Coast to make sure that we have, you know, we're ready for this to happen at any one of our resorts in the West. What were you, where were you at, at during this whole time, Tom? Were you, were you set up in the base lodge, kind of running things? Were you up on the mountain overseeing the crews? What, where were you at? Were you all over the place? Take us through that time period. Yeah, I think before the evacuation, we had an incident command center set up at our corporate office on the Nevada side. So it was out of town. It was you know a little bit away from the fire. So we we were based out of there. And then as the fire just kept coming toward us, we ended up going to, I went up to North Star and kind of manned the, the ship from there and um, had all the resources needed there. And uh, we had a couple people left on the ground here, the snow surfaces, senior manager, the base op director, Ryan Bigley was around and they, they interfaced daily with the fire captains at the resort. And then we had, you know, incident command meetings, which I handled up at North from North Star. And was it all a blur time? I, was there time to be afraid or worry about the consequences or was it just the next thing in front of you just take care of it? Yeah, it was a it was a bit of a ruckus. I mean, you know, we worked worked Matt and I worked hand in hand because Kirkwood is right in it as well. And mm -hmm. so, you know, between Matt and I and the the teams from corporate, we we just we got into a rhythm of support meetings every day, a couple times a day, where we just checked in to make sure we were 
staying one step ahead of it as best we could. And it really took that team effort and we were scattered all over, but with teams and zoom, we were able to look at each other, you know, a couple times a day and mm-hmm. kind of see how we were doing just across a screen and um, so much support from North star and from our corporate team that really, yeah, got us through it all. And just certainly a lot of hard work from the resort leaders. So Kirkwood made it out okay. Heavenly made it out okay. Your neighbor, Sierra Tahoe, was not so lucky. Sustained extensive damage, lost some lifts, had to rebuild them, lost an entire season, the entire 2021 to 22 ski season to the Caldor fire. What was your reaction when you realized the extent of the damage of Sierra Tahoe, Tom? And how was Heavenly and Kirkwood and the rest of Vail Resorts able to assist? Yeah, it was a surreal time. I mean, I, I was on the phone with John Rice, you know, every day, a couple times a day as the fire was coming toward Tahoe. And, you know, as it got closer to Sierra and the day it, it hit that resort, like I just remember talking to him and, you know, it's, it's not one of those things that like happened overnight. It happened mm-hmm. over a slow period of time and that really changed the dynamics it's, it's like we saw it coming and we still couldn't stop it. And, you know, I just offered both Matt and I and, and the rest of the teams here just offered that resort, all of our support and, you know, so sorry for what happened to them, but also so proud of, of how they've rebounded. And so I think it, it built a really close relationship with, with John and, and, and Matt and I and, and our resorts with their team, which was pretty cool. And we were able to help them a lot. Like we, we helped, we stored some of Sierra's important supplies at Heavenly. They evacuated a bunch of stuff as the storm was coming. So we, we helped in that sense. And then after the fire, you know, we've, we've continued to supply equipment, lift parts, snowmobiles, you know, just anything they need. Because uh, also the supply chain was a challenge during that period. And you couldn't just order stuff and get it fixed. So the industry itself, and I, I know that Mammoth and Palisades and every resort in California pitched in. It, it was a real collaborative effort. Uh, I think the one thing I'm most proud of is have, uh, Sierra has a straight A program for local students who get a free pass to Sierra when they get straight A's. And through our Epic Promise program, we were able to give those local kids uh, epic passes oh, wow. for the year that Sierra was closed. And so, yeah, that was a long standing Sierra program and mm-hmm. we just couldn't stand to see it die. And so we were able to keep that going and then we handed it back off to them when they, when they got open this year. So that was all, that was all very rewarding. Yeah, it was amazing to see Sierra Tahoe's comeback and congratulations to them on, and that and the resiliency to pull through that. All right, let's shift gears here, Tom, and talk about windholds, which you mentioned earlier. This is something there was there was a really interesting San Francisco Chronicle article recently where you were interviewed and you laid out both why windholds are so frequent at Heavenly and why they seem to be becoming more common over time. So reset this for us. What's going on with windholds at Heavenly and why do you think that we're seeing more of them? Well, wind is just something we deal with at Heavenly. It's a it's an exposed 10,000-foot mountain that doesn't have any other big mountains right around it. So it, it just, whatever direction it's coming from, it's going to hit this resort. And, you know, our weather has just become more extreme in general. 
whether that's droughts we've seen, these giant snow years, the dozens of atmospheric rivers compared to maybe one or two fires, and then wind. The wind has just become more intense with, with each of these storms. And our predominant winds are from the southwest and or the east. They kind of switch gears. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're just, we're a high elevation resort. We have a lot of lower terrain too that generally is not affected by wind, but our upper lifts are high up and exposed and get hit with these prevailing winds. And so as the storms hit, they typically come, these these cold fronts have wind in the front of them and sometimes wind in the back of them. And we get it a day or two ahead of the storm and sometimes a day or two in the back of the storm. So it kind of, it's a double whammy a lot of times. You know, it's not uncommon for us to have 100 mile an hour winds on a regular basis up high. And so it's just what we have to learn to operate in. And, you know, I think the hardest part of it is it can be calm down in the base area and blowing 100 up top. Wow. And, you know, people can't see that. So it's part of the education process and communicating openly and honestly about it and really trying to educate our employees and our guests on what we're dealing with when it comes to wind. So let's talk about your lift fleet here, because when you're affected by wind, one of the lifts that you really can't afford to lose is Sky Express, because that really gives folks the only way to get back to the Nevada side from the California side. And I imagine you can just bust them when that doesn't work. But, you know, preferably, I think people would rather ski back over there. So thinking long term here, Tom, what are the options for Heavenly to build some sort of redundancy or some sort of alternate path to get from California back to Nevada? Uh, There's a huge opportunity and it's been in the master plan for a long time. It's called the J lift, which is not Mm -hmm. a super fancy name. It's just a a number, a letter of a lift that's in the master plan. Been there since 1998 and we were able to get wind telemetry put in their uh, solar powered wind telemetry this year. And, you know, I think the reason it hadn't been built yet was there was no tangible proof that it was less windy than sky. But with the data we have now from the wind, it's it's way less windy. And where would this sit, Tom? What, what, what's the location? I'm looking at the trail map now. So for the listeners, kind of set this up for us. From the bottom of sky to the top of the gondola, essentially. Okay. You draw a straight line from those oh, two nice. and it's a, it's going to be a game changer. So this lift has been in the plan for a long time. We now, you know, have some, some proof that it's less windy and, you know, it's, it's moved way up the list in terms of my priorities for mm-hmm. lift upgrades. And it'll be a game changer for this resort to be able to connect the two States because we have three lifts coming from the Nevada side to California. And we have one lift going from California to Nevada and that lift is sky, which is impacted by the wind a lot. And so mm-hmm. the second option to get to the Nevada side is going to be significant and open up a lot more skiing on those wind impacted days. So it looks like it wouldn't even be a very big lift that you would need, Tom, if you're talking about going up through that Maggie's Canyon terrain. Do you have any sense of what the vertical would be and, and what sort of lift you would like to put there? Yeah, we've we've been skiing it a bunch because we're hankering to start planning for this lift as soon as we can. I don't know the vertical. It's not super high, but we've skied the lift line. The lift line was actually cut several years ago, so it's not a big lift. I think it would be, you know, we would want capacity from that lift. So I think, you know, a high speed six or something like that would make a lot of sense. 
you know, potentially uh, up and download lifts so that we could, you know, include beginners that could get up to the beginner train at the top of the gondola and uh, help the ski school there. So there's just a lot of benefits to this project that, you know, I hope we can get to the finish line at some point in the near future. Have you considered upgrades to Sky Express itself? It's more than 30 years old. That tends to be around the replacement age for these old detachables. I've These Doppelmayr D-line bubble lifts have been really proven themselves as wind resistant. Have you looked at solutions for Sky Express that could maybe be a little more wind resistant? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think if, if we didn't have this other option for the interstate lift uh, or the J lift, I think we would be looking at that. And, it, and even if we do this other lift, I do think when Sky needs to be upgraded, there's, there's way better technology for wind, you know, heavier, heavier carriers with a, you know, a six pack and a bubble could really, really help. So, I mean, that's the good news. There's, there's options and opportunities to make the experience better here in the wind. Looking around the mountain, Tom, I appreciate that you have a huge lift fleet and Vale's a huge company that has priorities all over the place, but what's your wish list for upgrading other lifts at Heavenly? Yeah, I think there there are a lot of competing priorities, and I think we as a company have to look at it that way and prioritize based on what's best for the company overall. And uh, hopefully, we have a good story to tell with with our resorts in Tahoe. There's a lot of priorities at all three of our resorts. I think what we just talked about is probably the highest priority, but certainly Boulder Chair, which is kind of the completion of the North Bowl pod that we did started this year is an important upgrade for us. And then, you know, our most popular lift is Dipper Chair and mm-hmm. it's a high-speed quad. And I think upgrading the capacity there would be on my wish list for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got several other lifts in the master plan centered around the interstate connectivity and kind of more consistent operation. And so I, I could see upgrading like the Patsy's and Groove chair, those are two fixed grip triples that mm-hmm. go to the same place essentially. That could yeah. be one lift and be mm-hmm. like a, a high speed six pack or something or an eight pack mm-hmm. um, would be a really good move. The big easy chair up at the top of the gondola, when Tamarack's down and the gondola's down, this new interstate lift would connect you to the big easy chair, which would be able to get you to the Nevada side. So that's a that's a fixed grip quad. Mm-hmm. So I think increasing the capacity there would be a really good move. And then kind of on the more fun side, I think ultimately replacing Mott Canyon chair with a, with a newer lift, higher capacity lift that would go up toward the top of Dipper. That's also in the master plan and would make that terrain in Milky Way Bowl and Mott Canyon and Killebrew Canyon a lot more accessible and more vertical. So there's some, there's some exciting things and, you know, wish list kind of pipe dream would be to have something down the front side from the top of the gondola down to heavenly village in what we call fire break, which is, which is out of bounds and not in our permit area right now. But if there was ever a way to expand, that would be the place to do it. Cause it's just, it's 3000 vertical straight down into the village and it's amazing terrain. So I don't know if that will ever happen, but certainly something fun to think about. That's all really cool to think about. When you talk about Mott, would, would you ever see a detach coming out of Mott Canyon or, or is a fixed strip right, the right kind of lift for that terrain? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it depends on when, you know, we, we get some of these other kind of more critical 
priorities done first. But what a what a fun thing to think about the difference there. I think it could be either. It's expert terrain, so you're not going to have the density and capacity needs maybe that some of the other lifts would need. So mm-hmm. a fixed grip quad would probably work fine, you know. And it's long enough that and opens up enough acreage that uh, I could see it kind of going either way. That'll be a great improvement the day that down the road, when that happens, it'll be a pretty cool upgrade. Is there a version of reality where we see a lift in Killebrew Canyon or even up Milky Way Bowl? Uh, I don't think so. I think I think the Mott replacement would cover that well enough, but you never know down the road. I think there's there's a lot of other priorities, and I think you know things that are currently in the plan are going to have a lot better chance of getting regulatory approvals and things like that. How about the tram, Tom? I, I think a lot of folks don't even realize Heavenly has a tram. It's not like Snowbird or Jackson where it's the lift, right? It's a it's a low capacity lift. It's redundant with gun barrel. I'd imagine it's convenient to move stuff up the mountain because you got that big box. Long term, what's your thinking around the tram? Do you think you'd like to have another more modern tram there? Or would it make more sense to just upgrade gun barrel to a six or eight pack and clear out the space? Yeah, what we really need uh, is redundancy um, for Powder Bowl Express, mm-hmm. which is a high-speed six-pack, because that's that's the only way to get up to that part of the mountain is that one lift. So the current plan would be to, you know, someday down the road, uh, replace the tram with a gondola or chandala that would mm-hmm. uh, go up to the top of the Powder Bowl area. Okay. So it would give us that redundancy for that lift. And also there's potential in the plan to have a, a day lodge up at the top of the powder bowl area because we don't have an indoor lodge on the California side. So this new gondola would give us extra capacity to get to that part of the mountain and also service a day lodge up there. And uh, it would have a mid station unload at the top of the current pram. So you'd be able to access Lakeview Lodge and ski the face and things like that. But it's uh, yeah, it's another project that I think makes a lot of sense when the time is right for this resort. It kind of each piece fits within kind of the growth strategy for this resort. So let me let me back up and appreciate what you just put in, which is this new North Bowl Express. And Heavenly's funny because it's so big. When you look at the trail map, for those of you listening who may not have been to Heavenly, it looks like it's not that long of a lift. But this is a a pretty major lift. This serves a pretty major hunk of terrain. So talk about the North Bowl Express, Tom, what it replaced and how much that's changed the experience of skiing that part of Heavenly. Yeah, it's been a game changer. I mean, literally from every metric we'd hoped for, it's it's exceeded. That lift was a long ride. It was typically like a 19-minute ride just mm-hmm. on that one. And then you add boulder to it. It was almost a half an hour to just get up that lift. And so it just did not get much ridership. You know, you kind of did it once and you could either take a nap or eat your lunch or (laughs) do whatever on that lift ride, but went from that to five minutes and it opened up terrain that was so underutilized. And, you know, we got to ski it and you got to see how cool that terrain was, which was Mm -hmm. literally not used much in the past. Nevada woods, Boulder shoot some of the runs off that lift. We've seen so many positive comments from our guests and appreciation for, for replacing that old chair. It also evened out our parking on the Nevada side. So stagecoach wasn't quite as overloaded and we had more people parking in Boulder, which was part of our goal. 
And it turned people on to the Boulder Lodge, which is kind of a classic throwback. It reminds me of the T-Bar Lodge at Stevens Pass, where I first started. And that kind of iconic ski lodge experience over there. So it's it's really been a game changer and really thankful that we were able to get the support to put that lift in this year. Yeah, we had great tree run over there. That terrain was just terrific. And I, I could see what you're saying, how it could get overlooked. So Tom, let's zoom out here a little bit and look at your Tahoe world as a whole. Talk a little bit about how North Star and Kirkwood and Heavenly complement one another. I think it's really unique to have this region that's just one of the great ski regions of the world. And then you have these three amazing resorts and they're all very, very different and they all feel very, very different and they sort of appeal to a different crowd. So talk about how they all work together as a unit to give Vail this really incredible network around Lake Tahoe. Yeah, I mean, you described it well. It is so unique and different. And yeah, we're we're all in one region with three completely different resorts and really have something for everyone here. So not only that, like we also have a lot of opportunities to share staff and share resources between the three resorts because we're close enough together to to do that. And yeah, when you put all those pieces together, I mean, from our guest standpoint, to be able to have a Kirkwood one day, Heavenly on another day, and then go up and, and ski on the North Shore the next day, it's kind of Europe-like. I mean, they're so different. And yeah, I think I'm just so grateful to be in this region where we have such great resorts, and I'm so happy to be able to to work with the teams at each one. So it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because you have all this snow, these outstanding resorts, this great ski culture, and it sure is popular. So you announced some parking changes to all three resorts recently, and you weren't the only ones. I hosted Dee Byrne, the head of Palisades Tahoe, on this podcast yesterday, and they are also implementing some parking changes, some paid parking next year. So lay this out for us, Tom. Why did you change parking for next year, and what are those changes? Well, first of all, we had to. The California base in particular has gotten so popular that on peak days, there's just not enough parking for the amount of people that wanted to get here. And so that created some traffic jams around the Ski Run Boulevard area. And like, I am super excited about this program because we just have to solve these challenges on peak days. And it's it's only on weekends and holidays until noon. And you know, this is going to take a little bit of effort on our, our guests on those days and a little behavioral change, but it should take a lot of traffic off the road. And, you know, simply just like Park City learned, like it shouldn't cost people that find three other people to jump in their vehicle with them that have a reservation to park for free on weekends and holidays at California parking lot. And it's just going to take off so many cars off the road. So essentially you have to have a reservation. Uh, Saturday, Sunday, and holidays till noon. Mm -hmm. And then if you have four people in your vehicle, you park for free. And if you have less than four people in your vehicle, you pay $20 and uh, everything goes away at noon and it becomes uh, just like every other parking lot and every other day. So let's wrap up here today, Tom, with a quick word on the Epic Pass. Tons of different pass options for Tahoe skiers. You can go full Epic Pass and travel around the country. Epic Local will give you some blackouts. Tahoe Local, same thing, but it's just good at those resorts. And, and I think you get some days at some of the Colorado resorts in Park City as well. And then you can do the Tahoe Value, and that gives you you no know, Saturdays at Kirkwood and North Star, but all the holidays at Heavenly. 
and you have a standalone pass to Kirkwood. So lots of options is my point here. And I'll spell those out in the article that accompanies this pod on stormskiing.com so folks can see them. But they really point to how complex the Tahoe market is, the variety of skiers, the richness of California and the California ski culture. Just talk about all these different groups that you have to cater to here, Tom, the locals, the tourists, free skiers, the Bay Area regulars, um, people who come in from outside to see Tahoe and something different and how you work to accommodate all of them and how the Epic Pass helps you do that. Yeah, I, I think it is all about the options. And I think the reason there are so many products is because there's so many unique nuances to kind of each resort. And, you know, I think the fact that our company is willing to look at these different buckets of options for people is is really pretty awesome because for a guest to commit in advance to our resorts, that's a big help to our business. And they're getting such a discounted way to ski and ride for giving us that commitment in advance. And it really is a win-win situation as far as I'm concerned. And so looking at what works for the majority of people at the different resorts is, yeah, just, just created all these options. And, you know, I think people need to do the homework to find out which product is best for them. Um, but there are a lot of options. So it's, it's, I don't think it's too hard to find kind of what is the best for someone's lifestyle or the time they have to, to ski and ride. And it is such a discounted way to get to some of the best resorts in the world. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a great product, Tom. And on my Tahoe tour, I certainly hit all three resorts. I would encourage anyone to do the same. They feel like different worlds, even though they're only a few miles apart from each other. With that, Tom, I will give you your day back. I really cannot thank you enough. This was a lot of fun. Really appreciate your perspective and your point of view here. I, you know, congratulations to you and the team on managing a huge season, the biggest in Tahoe ski history, as it turned out. So I hope you have a nice vacation planned. You definitely earned it. So thank you very much for your time today. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, Stuart. It's been great. That's Tom Fortune, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Heavenly and Vales Tahoe Region. Tom is great. We had a really fun day skiing around together, and that was a really fun conversation. A little warning, if you are going to ski with Tom, get your quads ready because he is not stopping until you get to the bottom of the lift. He is a skier and he is very at home flying down the mountain. So thank you very much for that, Tom. And thank you all, as always, for listening. I have another Tahoe pod coming your way ASAP with another great leader and skier, D. Byrne at Palisades Tahoe. May is going to be a lot of fun on the storm as we continue to ride the Cali train when I host Mount Baldy General Manager Robbie Ellingson. We will also hear from the leaders of Banff, Middlebury Snowbowl, Sun Peaks, and Granite Gorge, New Hampshire. Lots, lots more coming your way, and I am always adding more. The very best way to get those episodes as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. And I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.